Hello. For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, and welcome to the latest readout video from our Wednesday Wake Up email newsletter, in which we return to the question of how governments are going to make us all buy electric cars if we don't want to, and also to the bit where we nag you to subscribe to us on YouTube, Rumble, and so on, and sign up for the free newsletter, and give us money so we can keep pushing back against bad science and worse policy. A monthly pledge of $5 or $10 is a splendid investment compared to, for instance, the cost of carbon taxes. Or this new thing where, in case you don't want an electric vehicle because they don't perform very well or you object to the bit where they explode, they tell you that this marvelous Green New Deal or Just Transition or whatever packaging it comes in in your country means no sacrifice of lifestyle. In fact, there'll be more and better jobs and cooler gadgets. But just in case it doesn't and we all end up broke, The Economist rushes to assure us that actually people don't want cars anyway. At least not cool young people of whom they found several. And we say bully for them. At age 16, they're convinced that they'll never be bundling kids into a minivan with a pile of gear to head to the arena and drink bad coffee in the early morning. And obviously 16-year-olds know a lot more about life than adults. And at that age, we certainly did. But still... If you don't want a car, nobody's going to make you buy one. So what if you do want one? The Economist chortles that uh, you don't, or at least they don't. Quote, Getting a driver's license was once a nearly universal rite of passage into adulthood. Now it is something that a growing minority of young people either ignore or actively oppose into their 20s and beyond, end quote. Yeah, like they actively oppose moving out of their parents' basement, my older, crabbier self responds. And in fact, the article admits that, quote, on the surface, the love affair with the personal automobile continues unabated into this century. The number of drivers on the world's roads continues to rise almost everywhere. The distance driven by American motorists hit a new peak last year, according to data from the Federal Highway Administration, end quote. But these are mere facts, dispelled by a quick journalistic, quote, campaigners detect a sea change, end quote. And while they admit that, quote, one British report, led by Dr. Kieran Chatterjee at the University of the West of England and published in 2018, fingered a rise in insecure or poorly paid jobs, a decline in home ownership, and a tendency to spend longer in education, end quote, on the decline in car ownership, and that sounds bad, they quickly pivot to, quote, one big motivator, at least for the most committed, is worries about climate change, end quote. But... If they worry about climate and they don't want cars, let them ride bikes. The rest of us want choice. And some of us also notice a strange thing about the warming that famously makes snow go away. It's not that the snow didn't go away, though it didn't. It's that the warming itself is hard to find. According to Roy Spencer's careful monitoring of the lower tropospheric temperature anomaly, January 2023 was actually colder than the average from 1991 to 2020. Now, it's only colder by a trivial, in fact, margin of error, 0.04 degrees Celsius, and we don't think much of double decimal measures of something as vague and complicated as global temperature, no matter what they say. But, if this is the hottest year ever, blah, 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 shouldn't that number be positive to a statistically significant, even ominous degree? Instead, Athens, Greece, the famously hot, sunny place where democracy was born, got walloped by snow again. Also, our quick roundup of ongoing stories includes that despite the usual claims that alternative energy is now very cheap, although it still needs massive subsidies, 
The Bank of Canada warns that among the causes of inflation, quote, the slowest but perhaps the most persistent trend is associated with the ongoing transition from fossil fuels to green energy, end quote. Why? Because green energy is more expensive. We also note that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau just took a jet airplane to the Caribbean for the modest purpose of, quote, advancing democracy, human rights, economic growth that benefits everyone, and developing clean energy, end quote. Oh, and also to, quote, advocate for climate action and resilience for the region, which is particularly vulnerable to climate change and natural disasters, end quote. You, on the other hand, can take a blimp or a raft or stay home. Oh, and our quick news roundup includes also that Antarctica Thwaites Doomsday Glacier is melting yet again. Climate change threatens Valentine's Day yet again. And one of the scientists who disrupted a scientific conference to advance science by forcing scientists to chant slogans in the street is amazed that they got fired for it, while another scientist who advanced science by vandalizing art is amazed to face charges. These people don't do reality well, do they? In this week's newsletter, we also turn to that famous ecological radical and Greenpeace co-founder Patrick Moore, yes, the guy in the world's most famous seal-hugging photo ever, who's now in high dudgeon because he says, quote, 1975 to 79, Greenpeace crews went into the Pacific and got in front of the harpoons that were killing 30,000 whales a year. I was on all five voyages. We stopped whale hunt. Now Greenpeace supports massive wind farms in whales' habitat. Traitors all, end quote. These are strong words from a guy not known to mince words. But, as Leighton Woodhouse and Michael Schellenberger explain, they're justified in every dimension. It's not just that offshore wind farms seem to be deadly to whales, including the acutely endangered North Atlantic right whale, of which just 340 remain on Earth. It's that to create these lethal facilities, the environmental and political establishments have swept aside the institutional and intellectual obstacles to despoiling the natural world that for decades they piously insisted were core and non-negotiable matters of principle for them, including the famous precautionary principle that if you're not sure, you don't do it. But there's a lot of things we're not sure about with respect to wind farms, and they're not good. For instance, they don't just interfere with whales' echolocation because of the noise they generate while they're being built and while they're operating. The air turbulence they cause messes with the feeding grounds of the plankton that many whales, including right whales, feed on. Also, Moore explains, quote, depending on their size, each of the 1,500 turbines will require a concrete base excavated into the ocean sediment up to 150 feet deep and 30 to 40 feet wide. This will clearly cause a huge amount of mud to be dispersed into the water column. The mud from these many excavations may interfere with their feeding and may also affect the species they depend on for food, end quote. Moreover, Woodhouse and Schellenberger say, quote, wind developers are demanding higher speed limits for their boats. If they don't get them, the industry claims, it will need to build hotels for the workers at the sites right in the middle of right whale habitat, end quote. So, imagine what Greenpeace would say about an oil company using that kind of pressure tactic. And what's the party line on this? Why, CNN leaps in with, quote, what's killing whales off the northeast coast? It's not wind farm projects, experts say, end quote. Yeah, experts say, unlike that chump Patrick Moore. In the newsletter, we also note that despite a long history of climate policies costing far more than planned and accomplishing precisely nothing, a calm suggestion to wait and see appears to be beyond the capacity of our politicians, even supposedly right-wing ones, who see a poll showing public support for climate action and rush into what Matthew Lau calls, quote, a shambolic mishmash of impoverishing energy policies, climate alarmism, 
excess spending, and virtue signaling regulations that afflict consumers and businesses without any compensating environmental benefit, end quote. And in this case, he's talking about the mess created by Britain's so-called Conservative Party. In response to this sort of thing, both he and architect-turned-author David Stark have offered a bold, some might say bizarre, alternative. Don't just do something. Stand there. Wait and see. Think and plan. Because any sane cost-benefit analysis of the small possible costs of continued gradual warming versus economy-smashing measures that barely affect human greenhouse gas emissions says adaptation is much cheaper than prevention, even if there really is something to adapt to, which we don't yet know. And it's curious that many people who aren't politicians manage to find the courage to say such things, including Stark in this book that he's written called Climate Change for Young People, The Antidote to Eco-Anxiety. And it's strange how few people who are politicians can muster the necessary nerve or brains to do the same. But we continue to hope that someone somewhere who aspires to office, or holds it, will realize that, when in danger or in doubt, run in circles, scream and shout, is not even meant to be good advice, even on climate, and certainly isn't good advice. And another thing. If the best of Maclean's is to be believed, a good way to raise awareness of the looming catastrophe caused by the greenhouse effect and global warming caused by fossil fuels is to build a greenhouse, heat it with fossil fuels, and grow things inside it that you can't grow outside it because it's too cold where you live. Yes, that's right. They profile one Annette Clark who, quote, built a greenhouse that grows eye-catching exotic fruits in Nova Scotia. Seeking refuge from looming climate disasters, Clark sold her land in British Columbia in 2021, end quote, and headed to Lunenburg to erect a greenhouse equipped with a propane heater so she can grow, quote, tart Chilean guava berries, plump persimmons the size of tomatoes, and pods of blue sausage fruit, also known as dead man's fingers, end quote. Yum, yum. Her exotic fruit nursery is, quote, expanding what the 100-mile diet means to hungry East Coasters, end quote. Yeah, you ain't foolin'. But you're also not thinking much about how a winter spent eating salt, cod, and rutabaga in a cold climate can be transformed into bounty by a greenhouse effect. Now, the story assures us that, quote, it's not just about picking up a piece of fruit and eating it, she says. It's about getting people to think, where does this come from, end quote. Good idea. Where does it come from? Somewhere warm, or a local greenhouse full of CO2 and warmth. How do you like them apples? Or these bombs. Because in the newsletter, we also continue our fact-check of Al Gore's rant in Davos, and now we come to his claim that CO2 emissions are causing the rain bombs. The what? We hadn't heard of rain bombs before, and nor apparently had your local weather person. For instance, weatherzone.com asks, quote, Is a rain bomb really a thing, end quote? And then it answers, quote, There is no such thing as a rain bomb in the field of meteorology, end quote. And according to Mark Gibbs, an oceanographer and climate researcher from Queensland University of Technology, quote, every meteorologist I know hates this term. I have no idea where it came from, but it pops up in the media all the time, and it's not an accurate term at all, end quote. Another meteorologist warned in the Washington Post back in 2016 that use of such overwrought metaphors, quote, gives us a bad name, end quote. Well, okay then. But so does sitting silently by year after year while people like Al Gore and Greta Thunberg spout increasingly loopy nonsense about climate change, including that weather is getting worse when you meteorologists know it's not. And speaking of that, in his Substack series called, quote, What the Media Won't Tell You About, end quote, Roger Pilkey Jr. turns his attention to the evidence concerning tornadoes that occur in the United States. 
He begins by noting that the Associated Press and the Washington Post both recently insinuated that climate change is making them stronger and more frequent, but neither outlet provided any data. There's a surprise. So, Pilkey Jr. does his usual denialist mumbo-jumbo shtick by uh, presenting the historical data that shows tornadoes in the U.S. are becoming less damaging and severe tornadoes are becoming less frequent. And on a related note, we also dip into the CO2Science.org archive for a study that noted that, quote, Media reports in recent years have left the public with the distinct impression that global warming has resulted and continues to result in changes in the frequencies and intensities of severe weather events, end quote. So, they looked into the archives to find long-term trends in destructive windstorms in the Canadian prairies from 1882 to 2001, and, as you probably guessed if you're watching this channel, there weren't any. Quote, all intense storms showed no discernible changes in frequency after 1940, end quote. For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, and I know when a climate scare has bombed.